Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 138. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna and Ken. This week, we're joined by Eva Hagberg, a New York-based writer and architectural consultant. Our conversation covers Eva's background in architectural education and how that transitioned into a writing career, spanning architectural criticism to her own life in her recently published memoir, How to Be Loved. We also talk about the unique personality traits of architects and her approach to helping architects communicate. So I'm especially happy that Eva Hagberg was able to join us today because the one time I met Eva in the flesh was literally less than a minute. And it's because she was coming in as I was going out of the architecture lobby think in at the AIA conference in New York City last year. And Eva, I am so happy to finally get a chance to really speak with you. Welcome to the show. Thank you for coming. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. So I know that you have lived a wonderfully complex life around and within architecture. And I want to get to our listeners a little bit of a sort of a synopsis of background of who you are and what your relationship to our profession is. But I also just want to get a little bit of a sense of who you are. So you've had such an interesting career. I first heard about Eva when Michael Beirut talked about you on the design podcast that he does and that beautiful feature you did in the New York Times about what to wear. And I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of it. How to be believable? How I learned to look believable. (sighs) That was such an impactful, amazing, amazing article, Mm. really kind of at the beginning of the whole Me Too movement. So anyway, can you give us sort of a a synopsis or um, who you are, what you're doing now? And and... Yeah, so I wanted to be an architect uh, since I I had the very typical origin story. My um, (laughs) stepfather got me a, a book of like modern architecture when I was 12 and I saw Philip Johnson's Glass House and I saw Le Corbusier's Villa Savoy and I started sketching basically versions of those houses and was like, I will be an architect when I when I grow up and went to Princeton, which I say not to uh, name drop, but because they have a, a, a well-known architecture school. And when I got there as a freshman, I was like, I'm going to, you know, do English or, or do international, rela- whatever. But I would like walk past the architecture building every day and think like, well, I wish that I had the confidence to try and major mm. in architecture. You know, because the architecture students were all really cool and they were really good at like wearing clothes. And I was <laughs> Had late 90s club kid who went to Cyberdog in London because I was actually, I'd gone to high school in the UK. And then I, you know, so I was this sort of like weird, like Canadian, German, UK kid wearing like late 90s, like raver pants, but also like deeply in love with Corbusier. So I was a hit at parties. I finally, sophomore year, was like, I'm just going to take sophomore studio, you know, and I won't take you through my entire every year, but this is crucial. And <laughs> I, I met my friend, Matt Roman, who now runs his firm, Hawkins Roman. And, um, and they were like, listen, sophomore studio is the hardest class on campus. One out of every four of you will go on to major in architecture. This is the weeding out class. This is, you know, separates the wheat from the chat, whatever. So me, a Leo, Leo rising year of the dog, ultimate, whatever personality type Elon Musk is, was like, I will be one of those people who majors in architecture. And so I ignored the very clear information that I received by trying to draw, which was that I cannot draw. I cannot design. I cannot conceptualize space. Yes, even with the computer, I just do not have the ability to like imagine, you know, I can't rotate objects in space. I mean, I was the worst architecture major ever, but 
I remember my teachers were like, you know, your projects are garbage, but you talk about them so well. <laughs> so I could sell anything to anybody. I mean, it's like, you know, I had Jesse Riser for a studio and I bought a bunch of egg crate mattresses and I just rolled around on them on the floor in front of, you know, like Liz Diller and all these other people. <laughs> and everybody was like, we really want to fail you, but you're so good at seeing, you know? So, and, mm-hmm. and my, my colleagues were like, you know, what are you doing in the studio? But also, Hey, tell me how to talk about this project. And I was just able to do awesome. that. Right? Yeah. So my thesis, and then I wrote my senior thesis and I remember my advisor, Christine Boyer, she was like, this is totally apocryphal. So I might misquote her, but she said something like, you know, we all thought that you were just like, not that bright, you know, but it's that you are a writer. Like, oh, you're a writer. We just didn't see that because Princeton is so focused on studio. So she was like, you should do this for a living. You should move to New York and be a writer. And I was like, great. When's the next train? So I graduated. I moved to New York. I did not have a place to live. I had $100. I had a like duffel bag. I literally slept on floors. I slept on people's floors on the Lower East Side. But I got a job working as a research assistant with a critic named Philip Noble, who was writing a book that became the book 16 Acres. And so he paid me like a hundred dollars a day, which I thought was the most money a person could ever make. Like I called my parents and I was like, I am making one hundred dollars. And they were like, that's not that much money. Um and then he introduced me to Martin Peterson at Metropolis and was like, Hey, I have this like 20, I was 20 when I moved to New York. I was 20 when I graduated. I think he was like, yeah. And then I turned 21. He was like, I was like 21 year old, like genius. You know, you should commission Mm -hmm. her. Martin was like, great. Sorry, you're having like a marital crisis and are obviously, you know, obsessed with this, like probably not that smart 21 year old, but like, sure, I'll give her an assignment. (laughs) And the assignment was to write about a stadium in Germany. And so I had to like do an interview in German which I was Uh able to do, which I think Martin didn't know. And I turned in this copy and Martin was like, oh, wait, you are really good at this. And so he became my first, you know, and to this day, most beloved writing mentors and gave me assignments. And then I just like, it was 2003, you know, magazines still were kind of a big deal. They were hungry for writers. And so my freelance career just really took off. And then, and then I became a raging drug addict and alcoholic. And so I sort of torpedoed my career and then the recession hit. So I went to grad school to hide for eight and a half years. And now I have a PhD and $213,000 in student loan debt. And I'm back in New York making it. Oh, big. that's, that's an excellent recession story though. The recession hit and I needed to get clean anyway. <laughs> yeah, so I just, like, went to Berkeley and like did a lot of yoga and got a PhD. <laughs> Because, yeah, we have a lot of recession stories in this in the field, as you know, as you yeah. know. So that's what what I uh, kind of what I wanted to talk about. But but before I get to that question about how you tell those stories of architects. So you got your Ph.D. and it is not specifically architecture or it's it's. No. So I was sexually harassed by a professor in the architecture department. And so I left the architecture department after getting my master's in architectural history. And I developed my own interdisciplinary Ph.D. program called Visual and Narrative Culture. And it's a mix of American studies, art history, history, and architecture. So, you know, the good news is I can, like, I mean, I'm qualified to teach in a number of different departments, which is dope. The bad news is that, as you know, despite, like, rhetoric around loving interdisciplinarity, I think that academic departments still are pretty siloed and pretty nervous and are like, okay, but what do you know? And I'm like, I just know how to find stuff out. You know, mm-hmm. I, I know how, I know how to figure out what I know. So are you teaching now or do you, you have a I day job? Not. No, I have a day job. Well, what is my day? I don't know. Yeah. 
kind of hang out. Um, I just get on Twitter and drag people. Yeah, I do some consulting. I mean, I do like like media strategy for architects, which is how I pay the bills. And, uh, you know, like PR-ish, you know, I do a lot. I, I just tell them what to do. I'm like, don't take that phone call. Do take this phone call. When you take this phone call, say this. Don't say that. Give them this picture. Don't give them that picture. I don't know why I'm right, but I just know that I am. Just trust mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah. And then my book was my day job for a long time. Um, yeah. and now, you know, hyping the book is a little bit of a day job, although that slowed down, but I'm not teaching and I'm really sad. I applied to Columbia and I didn't even get a, get a like acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. So what's up Columbia? Yeah. yeah. Columbia students listening. <laughs> go to your, go to your Dean. So before we move along too far in the timeline, I have a question that I've been wanting to ask you for a long time. And it goes back to your comment about um, how you started out working with uh, Philip Noble. Did you guys do the gutter? Oh, who, whomst among us has not been the gutter? <laughs> really? That's a nice answer. <laughs> I love it. That's a great answer. Did you know me then? Did you read The Gutter? Were you a Gutter fan? I read The Gutter. Well, of course, because back then when The Gutter came out, I mean, that was, uh, I mean, Archonnect was the only yeah. website mm-hmm. where people, where architects were kind of, you know, gossiping and communicating mm-hmm. for many years, way before Facebook and all that stuff. So when The Gutter came out, that was that was a big thing. And I remember there was just so much uh, curiosity about, about because it was a, it was a pretty well-kept secret who was who was writing it but my theory was that it was you and philip that's amazing suzanne stevens said that she knew it was a man and a woman and i was like <laughs> what a what a theory <laughs> <laughs> well you're like it's a 25 percent chance that you're right with that theory <laughs> thank you who says let me just say that i you know <laughs> let me be let me be as explicit as possible the the you know the early 2000s were a great time I had a great time. I got to make a lot of jokes. And um, I think I was never as funny as I was on the internet in the early 2000s. So take from that what you will. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, I was a big fan of the gutter. It was very enjoyable. It was a, it, it was it was a shame that that uh, the gutter had a very brief moment in, in history and in the world of architecture, because architecture does kind of, you know, maybe I should uh, bring it back. Maybe someone oh. should bring it back. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> we'll cut that part where you said I should bring back and just well, you know, you can resurrect things. Somebody who's doing Gawker 2.0 that wasn't there yeah. at Gawker 1.0. Yeah, yeah. You know? exactly, exactly. Yeah. One other thing, I, I didn't realize that you had some Canadian blood in you. Where Where are you from? Well, I grew up in Edmonton. Yeah, yeah. I I lived for a few years in Lethbridge, Alberta. Oh my God, that's such yeah. a specific Albertan place. Well, that's that's where my that's where my parents uh, grew up and met. I've got mostly Hungarian blood, but um, Canadian blood as well. Um, but I, yeah, I grew up in Canada until I was about 18, mostly in Victoria. But I did, I did spend a few years in Lethbridge. So I do know the, those uh, prairie provinces. But yeah. I, yeah, I had no idea. For some reason, I always thought that you were um, East Coast, U.S. No, I mean, my, my family's East Coast, but I actually like ha- did not live in the U.S. really before college. And so I got to college and I was like, wait, what is happening here? Why does everybody have so much money? Like, because I grew up in Germany and Canada and England, and I don't have Canadian blood, I should say, but I formally immigrated to Canada, which I highly recommend, um, and which was great to know on November 9th, 2016. I was like, I got myself an expired Canadian passport that I can probably <laughs> renew. It. That, that was the day that the Canadian immigration website went down, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, crashed, right? 
since Paul went ahead and brought up gossip, I do want to, yeah, I kind of want to talk a little bit about architecture gossip. But to me, the whole, the main thrust of architecture gossip is that we all want to hear it about each other. Um, mm-hmm. Nobody else gives a damn in the world about architects. That's my attitude, right? That, that, that we are so self-obsessed as architects. We want to know everything about each other and what everyone else is doing and what everyone else in the world thinks about us. But the truth mm-hmm. is no one gives a damn about us. They don't think about us. That's my attitude. To hear you say something like, all of the architecture students all wore their clothes so well makes me feel like maybe people do pay attention to architects. So since that's Part of your day job is sort of how mm-hmm. architects have media strategies. Can you talk a little about that, about how that persona of architects is or is not, you know, amplified by our own media and other media? Yeah. So, I mean, I think... And I please, also... please feel free to cut us down. I, I am here for the slamming of architects at any time. I love architects. Architects are my favorite. Um, <laughs> but I also think that it's not unique to architecture that like we care deeply about the people in our industry and other people sure. don't. You know, it's mm-hmm. like there's all this, like graphic design blogs where people are like, oh, did, you know, stuff on Sagmeister did the thing. And it's like, whatever. Like, you know, I don't care about that, but graphic designers do. So I think it's, I think it's a little bit unfair to sort of you know, single out architects for being like singularly obsessed with themselves. I think all groups are obsessed with with what is happening in their group. And I think that a lot, I mean, so I was teaching architecture, architectural history at UC Berkeley, and it was a great way to sort of argue against this idea that like nobody cares about architecture. I think what is happening culturally is that there aren't that many people who are explaining architecture well enough that people who are not architects or in the architecture world realize that they actually are qualified to look at buildings. And I think that that's been a difference between like the early 2000s where from my limited perspective, which was limited, it did feel like there was sort of a general interest in like urban environments and what was going on. And, you know, I know Philip's book was, was positioned as a popular book. It wasn't an architectural monograph, but it was using, you know, the architectural process around the World Trade Center reconstruction to explore ideas around like, does architecture have a responsibility to heal? What is it like when a city has, you know, a physical trauma, stuff like that. And so I think that like what's happened is that the really smart critics have all gone over to the strategy and editorial PR side because we all have to make a living and the magazines are squeezed because they don't have as much advertising revenue slash they are bought by like investors who just want to make money. So I think there's like a, there's a, there's a general sort of cultural shift in, you know, basically how much architecture is being written about. But I think that people, regular people, by which I just mean non-architecture world people, they don't actually need that much encouragement to care. I think they just need avenues to be given avenues with which to understand that they actually have a lot more competence than they think they do. You know, so an example is with my students, they'll be like, well, I don't know how to look at architecture. Like, I don't have this facility. And then I'll say, okay, you know, that parking garage on the corner of Bancroft, how do you feel when you walk past it? And they say, well, there's this weird overhang and I don't like it. And it makes me feel weird. And I'm scared to go there. And I'm like, right, that's, you're now an architecture critic. Yeah. nice. In terms of the gossip, like, Everybody was very excited that Richard Meyer was allegedly taking his penis out and putting it on his assistant. You know, I think a lot of people care about that allegedly. But that's not his architecture. (laughs) No, but they should be taking, I mean, they should pay attention. You know, so I guess I'm I'm speaking more to like the, the gossip part, although that was not gossip, that was reported, you know, alleged fact. 
but I, th- I think it's like maybe architects, I don't know. I think architects think that nobody cares, but actually people do care. And then it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where the architects are like, well, nobody can understand me anyway. I'm not going to try. And I'm like, no, just try a little bit. Just try a little bit and see what happens. You know, I, I've noticed something that came up in within the last, I think, I think it was a year that that is related to this, you know, topic of, of how architects perceive themselves, you know, within the community and outside the community. Um, I mean, during during the um, around the same time as the Richard Meyer debacle. yeah i don't know if uh around the same time as the richard meyer stuff the uh what's his name Uh, paulo soleri's daughter yeah he's talking Mm -hmm. about how he had molested her since she was a young child and i i it was i was really shocked at how quickly that news kind of came and went and nobody seemed to really talk about it and it made me wonder like is this because not as many people know who Paolo Soleri is as, as much as Richard Meyer. And because there isn't kind of a wider public condemnation of him, architects are just like, well, I guess we don't really need to, mm. you know, say anything about it. Because, I mean, it's it's kind of amazing how that that news is just has just gone away. The Soleri news? Yeah. I mean, I the, the thought that comes to mind is that that has to do with like the institutional credibility of the New York Times reporters versus the it's like the mind snaps shut against uncomfortable truths. Right. And so I 100 percent believe I think her name is Daniela, Daniela Soleri. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so. Yeah. Right. And I think that people are very afraid to jump on a bandwagon or make a mistake. And so they need sort of, you know, proven allegations to to kind of take action. And so I feel like there's a category difference between the way in which she spoke about her experience versus the way in which who reported the was it Robin Pogrebin and somebody else reported the Meyer story? Like I think that there's just like a perception difference and I want to be careful because like both are equally, you know, true. But I've seen a lot of hand wringing and, you know, well, there's two sides to every story and like a man's reputation can be ruined by an accusation. And so I think people are just kind of scared to put any sort of money or reputation on the line unless they can like really clearly point to, you know, an eight month investigation or a year long investigation or whatever it was. And that's something that I certainly experienced when I accused somebody at UC Berkeley, where it was like, until the Chronicle story came out, everybody was like, well, you know, I mean, we, of course, you know, but nobody was really willing to sort of like get in the line of fire. Um, Mm. So that would be my sort of like, you know, two second theory. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, cause I know as, as a publisher, it was a, we had to make a lot of difficult decisions on how to cover the shitty men in architecture list because, mm. um, you know, because of the anonymity of the accusations and, mm-hmm. you know, it was like, uh, it's, it, it's, a, it's a difficult call in that situation. I just wonder if Paul Soleri didn't make as much of a splash that news because he's dead. I mean, there's nothing we can do to right. bring him to justice or it, it just, in a way, mm-hmm. it just seemed to me like he doesn't deserve the attention. He's dead. That if anything, his daughter would have deserved some support, but I, maybe people, I don't know. But Arcosanti is still celebrated as much as ever. You know, the the, fe- uh, the festival is still going on every year. Yeah, Arcosanti is very much a, a communal effort, though, and Paulo has not been there for years and years true, and years. True, true. So. Yeah, that's true. You know, I was curious, I mean, because the, the, the shitty men in architecture list, like, it, 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 was, it had a lot of 
a lot of fire behind it. And then all of a sudden it just got taken down. And it really, I think a lot of people, I think the list, uh, the people behind the list must have, something must have come legally at them that they were not ready for. They did. Some of the architects, you know, sicked their lawyers onto the, uh, the, the people that started the the list. And I think that that pressured them to, to take it down. That's, that's what I heard. Well, the other thing too, I mean, I think it probably confused for uh, many people in the profession is what, because they, they couldn't separate because of where it was occurring in the Me Too movement, they couldn't separate, they were having a difficult time with, um, this is shitty men in architecture, not sexual predators in architecture, because a lot of the behavior wasn't just about sexual uh, predatory behavior. It was just shitty fucking people in architecture. And they were doing things, you know, that were not that weren't sexually aggressive, but they were really. And so then as people started kind of trying to figure out, well, is that is that what we want this list to be about? And, and you know, um, shitty behavior is shitty behavior. It goes to that that article that we that was um, or there was both an article and a thread on Arcanet today relevant to this. And the thread was basically someone posting, why are people in architecture so such idiots that they work 90 hour weeks every week and have no life and put themselves through martyrdom to just do a shitty strip mall. <laughs> and then Paul, you guys put up a, uh, an article today. It was, it was part of a profile. It, it, yeah. It was one of the profiles that we've been doing with the architecture lobby, um, part of their just design, uh, initiative celebrating the, the work of firms that have, uh, admirable labor practices. As opposed to the awful, the shitty, abusive practices that came out on the shitty men in architecture list and that a lot of us are familiar with. Yes. Eva, again, that gets to me to the sort of why do architects do this to ourselves? <laughs> yeah. And how do we move past that terrible culture? You know, and you're, you're probably trying to help people to get beyond it for a lot of reasons, not just because it's not healthy, but because you want people to to be well employed and to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean. I think that there's so many reasons, but I think one of them is this idea that I was taught in school that like architecture is special. And if you have the talent for architecture, you are special. And with that specialness comes great genius and great pain. And more than any other profession besides maybe writing or no, I don't want to say like, there's a lot of weird professions, but like, I I think that there is (laughs) sort of pressure to, to sort of behave really bizarrely to sort of prove how much of a genius you are. And I just don't go for that. I mean, I just don't. I'm like, no, we just go to work. And then we, we, we like, I remember when I almost died, you know, and then I didn't die. And I thought to myself, I will never again think that something is an emergency if it's not truly an emergency. And you'd be amazed at how many magazines are like, it is an emergency. I need the high res tips of this bathroom. <laughs> and I can get hopped up and be like, fuck, you know. I need, you know, my client is what, no. And then I'm like, Eva, there was a day where your sodium was at 122 and you were going into a coma. That was an emergency. So I'm, you know, and I, I just, I, you know, I always want to tell people like, no, having actually almost died, like really, this isn't that important. Like, you don't have to almost die to now have this perspective. Just take my perspective and just believe it. You know, but it's hard, of course. I mean, I think that that's part of it. I think that if we took a little bit of ego out of it, I think a lot of people would would maybe behave differently at work. And then it's also scarcity culture, right? Which is very like, there's not enough work to go around. There's not enough buildings. Like, not enough people need architecture that we just have to, you know, cut each other down and be the best and work the hardest and be the fastest. And like, 
You don't, you actually don't. I mean, what would it look like if we all believed that there was enough to go around and there was enough money and there was enough work and we'd get enough attention. Um, and, and, and architecture is a nice thing. We, we all are very excited that we have the talent to do it, but it's not actually this extraordinarily amazing special talent that we now have to like slay ourselves in order to participate in, you know, which I see with a lot of writers too, you know, writers are like, Oh, I, I bleed on the page. And I'm like, I just go to work. I'm just an accountant, but my, but my numbers are sentences. Mm-hmm. Like I just don't mm-hmm. like just, I clock in, I clock out like oh. a, a position of neutrality, you know? So I think we all should just like, well, we can do whatever we want. I never, I try not to tell people what they should do, but you know, I invite architects to be like, maybe it's not that big of a deal. So, uh, it's interesting the way you put that. Um, there's this, there was this baseball player who I uh, used to play for the Mets and he's played for a lot of other teams and he was a superstar baseball player, but he didn't care about the game. He wasn't passionate about the game. It's just something he was good at and he did and it was his job and you'd ask him about baseball. He doesn't give a shit. He's running a fucking cattle ranch. He hates baseball. He just does. He just, he's just good at that. I mean, so is that kind of, I mean, is that kind of what you're, you know, you just, you, like, the way you put it is a, you're an accountant, but with words, I mean, it's kind of, it, I don't want to make it seem as very blase, but it just sounds like you're good at this. I'm going to, I'm going to get what I can out of being, you know, this is, I, I wasn't good at it as an architect. I'm good at writing, but I, it's not going to be my be all end all. It's not going to consume, it's not going to be this passion filled thing that I'm going to drive myself into the ground to do. Yeah. I mean, I have. Very so people have I've been on a lot of panels with memoirists and they're like, Why did you write your memoir? And these very, very, very good writers are like, you know, I've always been a writer. I really just wanted to I was on a panel with this woman writer. She was like, I I just wrote all the time and then I decided to publish it. And I was like, Oh, literary ambition. Like that I wrote my book because I have literary ambition, because I have the ambition to publish a book. Um, and I want to write another book because I I like to write and it is how I make sense of the world. But even that is almost too sort of dramatic for me. The thing that I learned by being really sick and the reason that my book is about like friendship, not not like cool things that happen on the internet. Well, there's a little cool things that happen on the internet. It's like I learned that the fabric of my life and the thing that makes my life meaningful is the stuff that I do in between doing the work that I have to do so I can afford to go to dinner with my friends. When I am in a building, you know, I have a client and I visited one of his houses and it was just a great house. And I had a great time. I was there for like 12 hours. I was feeling it. I was like, these vibes are great. This concrete is great. I love it. It makes sense to me. I understood what the argument of the house was. It was about compression and also discomfort, like, but also safety. You know, it was about a lot of different, really interesting things. I love doing that. I'll get behind that. But then I put it down. I, you know, I put it down and I go to dinner. And I think that architects are sort of taught by this culture of like the charrette, you know? that they teach the next generation that you never put it down because, because it is such a profound art. And I'm like, okay, but I'm also a writer who writes memoir, which is kind of the most like, you know, culturally sanctified as being like very intense and I'm able to Mm -hmm. put it down. So like, here's how I do it is I just have other things in my life that I care about more, which for me is like being helpful to other humans who are experiencing difficult times, you know, like that's what gets me out of bed. And then the work is cool. I mean, the work is fun. I have conversations sometimes where I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I'm, I'm thinking about architecture. But yeah, I'm not like, if I don't do this, I will. I think if I didn't write, I would I would really have a problem. But I don't know. I feel like I'm not articulating this very well. But it's 
Yeah, I think there's just an, a, a way to be a little bit more neutral. Can we talk about your book, your memoir? It's uh, How to Be Loved, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so besides wanting to publish a book, can you talk about what inspired you to write this and, and what the book is about for, for our readers that are not familiar with it yet? So, yeah, I mean, it's basically an anti-capitalist manifesto that is dressed up as like a lovely book about my feelings. So the the plot points are that, you know, I was I was a very lonely, ambitious, lonely, confused child, teen, adolescent, young adult. And I was, you know, very interested in exploring my intimacy problems, you know, at my pace in therapy, very slowly, always felt sort of like really confused about people that were friends with each other and were intimate. And then I woke up one morning and I fell down and I went to the hospital and an MRI revealed that I had had a hemorrhaged cyst in my brain. So, and then a neurosurgeon tested my blood and he was like, oh, I think you have brain cancer, right? So I went from being like in grad school, super hype about my professors liking me to at 31 facing the prospect of having brain cancer. You know, it was just so gnarly and I had brain surgery and I, and I didn't have brain cancer, but I just had like others, you know, so there was this whole sort of medical stuff, but what that did for me is it just removed my ability to kind of like fuck with myself in a way, you know, I couldn't, I'd be like lying on the floor and I need to go to the ER. And instead of being like, do I deserve love? I don't know. Do I hate myself? Yes. (laughs) Am I, am I, you know, all that stuff that was like very fascinating in therapy. I was like, if, if I don't get the help to go to the ER right now, I might die. Okay. So I need to learn how to ask for help. So a lot of the book is just me like really stumbling and trying all sorts of different ways to feel better. And then eventually just asking people to sort of love me or care for me. And there are three friends in particular that I write about. So there's Layla, who I met when I was in my early 20s. And then my friend Allison, who died, whose death is foreshadowed a lot in the book, which was a literary device that I used to, I hope, success. And then the last (laughs) friend, Lauren, who I got married. And then four days ago, I got like extremely allergic to the world. And so I spent four months living in Sedona in a tent. And Lauren was very central to that experience. So, you know, there's a lot of plot. I mean, it's pretty fast paced, but the plot is really what I hang the sort of observations and arguments on. And, and it's basically, it's, it's an, you know, it's against capitalism. And it's against progress as the ultimate comfort. Because what I realized when I was sick was people to comfort me would say, it will not always be like this. It will get better. And I really had to find a way to feel okay, believing that that was my last good day, you know, believing that it might only ever get worse. And could I still find comfort and could I still find meaning? And I realized that so much of the way in which we as a culture, you know, in the United States comfort each other is by basically saying like, this moment is not forever. This moment will be better. But like, what if this moment doesn't get better? What happens in this moment? And what fulfilled me and kept me going was just my friends, you know, loving me in in very different ways. And just like, it taught me how to be with somebody else who is in pain, which I was so afraid to do before I got sick, you know, and my friend Allison was dying when I met her. And I was like, this is weird. I, you know, you're older than me. You're di- you, like, you have cancer. I don't know what to do. I should like bring you soup, you know, and then we end up becoming like deeply intimate friends. So I think that, yeah, that's, that's kind of it. Um, that's what it's about. People say it's funny. They say it's funnier than they expected for a book about my dead friend and almost having brain cancer, which I am delighted by because it is funny on purpose. It is funny. It is funny. I actually like the the way you described it as has, it has a plot, but the plot is kind of a framework on which you hang these ideas just about talking about philosophy and life and Mm -hmm. the things that that people go through as we're navigating just yet. 
careers exactly. and relationships and, and health and all those things. So yeah, it's yeah. extremely fast paced and very funny. And yes, it is about losing best friends and facing your own death. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. As someone who is not a stranger to uh, therapy and, and self-help, was the process of writing the book therapeutic and, you know, a, I guess part of a part of your kind of, I guess, recovery in a, in a mm. sense? So no. And I would not have been able to write it if I hadn't done so much therapy before I came to the page, you know? Mm-hmm. So I noticed that I was able to write this, the first act pretty easily because I had processed all of that stuff so deeply. I'd processed my family trauma by doing EMDR. I'd processed, you know, my, the rupture of my relationship with my father and the, like all of that was really processed. So when I wrote it, it was pretty clean mm-hmm. um, in terms of text. And then the last act where I'm like driving around the desert and I like, I'm convinced that there's mold everywhere slash that I'm having like a traumatic response to marriage slash like really, really confused slash all my friends and family are like, oh, you're having a nervous breakdown. And I'm like, I am not. I am allergic to mold and there's mold everywhere. I was still really ashamed of my behavior and I hadn't fully processed it in therapy and I hadn't really given myself the space to forgive myself for kind of doing this like seemingly incomprehensible thing. And so the text didn't work because I was trying to prove that I hadn't had a nervous breakdown. Mm. And I was, and it was just, you know, my editor is amazing, Helen Asmat Houghton Mifflin. She kept being like, this is really unprocessed. Like this is really spinny. It's really like, it's just a lot of like, you know, it's, we're just like falling down to this like hole of descent. But then the farther away I got from it, the more I was able to be like, okay, I'm going to just like really articulate the fact that people were like, oh, cool. You're psychotic. Like that's what's happening because I processed the shame, you know, in therapy. So writing itself was not therapeutic. It was really a puzzle. It was like, how do I write Allison's death scene so that a reader cares? You know, how do I construct that? How, what kind of dialogue do I do to articulate our last conversation? You know, so that even though the reader has had her death foreshadowed, hopefully the reader, you know, I, I don't know, takes a moment, sheds a single tear or whatever. But the thing that shocked me was that the publication of the book was, was very important in my life. And it came out And I realized that I had gotten myself into situations because of guilt and shame that I had over having been sick that no longer applied. It was like, I thought that I was in debt to a lot of people over the way that they had cared for me. And as soon as the book came out, it was like the term limit of the debt expired, which I was not (laughs) expecting. And that felt deeply powerful and very profound. And I realized that like my life for five years had been about being sick. And it was either the recovery from being sick or being sick or having a different thing or whatever, but it was, it was all catching up. I was just always trying to catch up and the book came out and I was like, that chapter is done. What is next? What do I want to do next? What's my next book? Like, I now feel like I'm on the precipice of sort of, sort of like the second half of my career. Like I'm solidly mid career now. And that was a therapeutic, you know, event that I could never have predicted. But the writing itself, I did not feel like, oh, I'm finally getting this stuff out. You know, I'd gotten it all out in therapy, in yoga, screaming, you know. When you when you refer to being sick, I, I'm I'm just to confirm you're referring to the problem that was discovered with your with your brain, not not your addiction, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, it was the brain and then I had heart surgery and then I had two ovarian surgeries and then I had a root canal and then yeah. So being sick was just like a whole just it was just like unending. 
So before we move from your book, because I, I, I really don't want to. So a, a couple of things. Um, I, I, I read this. I was reading this one book a long time ago uh, by Maurice Blanchot, and it was about writing. And one one quote that has always stuck with me um, that he ref, he says in the writes in the book that um, once the book is written, it's no longer part of him. He doesn't recognize it as a, it's just like, it's a thing now. It's not something I can relate to. It's like, once I do a, a work, um, whether it be art or architecture, I've always kind of like put it away and don't even recognize it anymore. Do you still recognize yourself in this book? That's such a great question. So I recognize myself. I mean, I read it and I, and I do not disavow the person who wrote it, but I deeply believe that the book is no longer mine. I mean, I very much feel that it is not my book anymore. It is now a book. It is my work product that is in the world. And I actually did a lot of pretty intense energetic work around separating the book from myself. I mean, this is so cliche, but I went to see my body worker and I, I had a galley and I literally put it in my shirt on my belly. I mean, this is, you know, people are like, I'm like, this is the only child I'm ever going to have. But, and then she helped me like take it outside of my shirt. And then I put it next to me and then we put it on her altar. And then I was like, oh, I have now detached with love from my own book. Um, I love that. I love that. (laughs) Yeah, because otherwise I was going to be like, what are people saying? Like, I would have felt like I had a piece of myself just walking around in the world and people have all sorts of opinions. And I really, in order to stay sane, knew that I needed to just be like, this is yours. So, you know, I took like a meeting about movie, you know, possible movie adaptations and they were asking me like, well, who would you want to play you? And you know, what, what, who are you thinking? And I was like, oh, it's not mine anymore. I was like, you're the people that know how to do this. So I don't have an opinion. Like I'm the person who writes the books and I wrote the book. And so now it's like, now it's, it feels very complete, but I'm sure, you know, because I'm a human who's deeply flawed and deeply self-obsessed in five years, I'll read it and be, you know, very embarrassed. I'm sure. Um, you know, I, see, like, oh, I do that too. Amazing. Right. Yeah. You're like, I can't believe I did that. Good thing. I'm not doing that anymore. And then five years later, like, <laughs> your book came at a very interesting time. And, and at first I, I was in, I was challenged by it early on. Cause I'm like, wow, this is really, it wasn't until the third act. I started the end of the second act to the third act that I started putting it all together and it started to resonate for me. Um, and what, you know, we're talking to you today and I'm, I've just returned home from, from Jersey, um, where my mom called me Friday more or Friday night, late Friday night. And I made a reservation because, um, it, it turns out my father died three hours after I landed Saturday. And, you know, and here's the, here's the thing about it. It, you know, I am, when my brother passed away eight years ago, I never posted like, like, Hey, Facebook is like this place where you're supposed to share your life. And now here's all this social media. And I'm like, I don't want to be, I don't want you coming at me with condolences. And, and I say that now that, you know, I'm sure Donna and Paul are going, we just did that five minutes before we got on this fucking podcast. We were passing. And it's, it's, it's the idea that I am. Well, the thing is, is that it, I feel like, putting that stuff out into the public is, is searching for something that I'm not necessarily um, ready for. I've never been ready for anyone's, you know, whatever that, what's that item trying to figure out what the word is. I'm just not comfortable receiving that, that sense of sympathy. Yeah. It's not, it, I mean, first off, the death didn't happen to me. I didn't die. 
and my my feelings are really uh, like kind of very very much at uh, putting everybody at arm's length because I'm really focused on my mother and how and my sister and my brother everybody else in the family who's really grieving so i've no <laughs> i have no space i have no after you know when my brother died and and uh, my marriage was going to hell at the same fucking time i just said that's it turn the switch and i said i am not going to grieve these things this is not going to happen i'm going to let everybody else do their thing and i'm going to be the one who's kind of the stick in the storm and stand there strong and not so yeah so this book came at a very interesting time and i to 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 hear you talk about and read your words about letting people um do that i'm still considering that (laughs) i mean i can i can recommend intimacy is like the worst thing and also the best thing i mean it's i i share you know i share you like emoting and my grandfather died and my grandmother like two hours later was like, I, frankly, I don't know why people institutionalize grief. Everybody's husband dies. You know, I mean, that's my, that's my background. Right. So I've been crying a lot lately. And every time I cry and somebody says, Oh oh no, I'm like, no, I paid so much money to have access to my feelings. I am delighted to be able to cry. Mm-hmm. Like this is the product of like, of God, how much money have I spent on therapy? Like a hundred thousand dollars of therapy, you know, is, is now I'm able to cry. But like, also, I mean, I'll just, I'll just like put in a, a, a very small plug for, I totally understand being like the thing is happening to the other person, not to me. And also like, I believe that we live sort of interdependently and we are affected by each other and impacted by each other. And like, you know, even if you're not the person who was, and this was hard for a lot of my friends because a lot of my friends had their own experiences with my illness and with my, you know, almost dying. And, and a lot of them coped in in ways that I think maybe harmed them more in the long term. Like I think that there is sort of a, a ripple effect outwards of other people who suffer. It's very selfish. I, I totally I totally believe it's it's just very selfish. It's it's uh, I completely look at myself and go, you're being a selfish dick for not like allowing people to access this part of you who, who know that that's there. And I'm just like, no, no, I'm not letting you have any, yeah. any. people want to help. It gives them an opportunity to be of service. You know, this conversation is wonderful because in part to me re- reading the book, and I guess this is just how we always approach artworks. Um, I saw so much of myself reflected in it, right? Mm-hmm. Like I could see myself so much in it and it is incredibly personal. And so you feel like you have, as you just said, you have this intimacy with someone who in fact you've never met. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's it feels real and human um, and meaningful. But then it's also the thing because yeah, it's not really it's not really intimacy <laughs> because it's it's mm-hmm. it's books on a page and it's your own your own perception of of the artwork. And again, I maybe it's just because I'm an architect, but I do feel like this all relates so much to how we are architects. We do this work that we think speaks to absolute the, the absolute human condition of everyone who will experience it, but at the same time it's not our building, it's someone else's and we may never go back and see it again and um yeah, it, it's it, it's it, there's just a lot of conversation here around being sort of self-reflective, self-absorbed at the same time. <laughs> and I, I mean, totally. I highly recommend the book. I loved the book so much, uh, the How to Be Loved. I think everyone should read it. And all the female architects I know have read it, I think. so. Really? <laughs> yes, I know so many people who've read it. Yeah. Oh, my God. Tell yeah. them five-star Amazon reviews. <laughs> okay. I'll tell oh, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
Eva, I, I think one of the things that really sets you apart from the uh, architects that that I know and that we've had on the podcast is that you are uh, so vulnerable and you're so open with uh, with exactly. you know, your story, which which is incredibly admirable. I wish everybody, including myself, could be could be more like that. Do you, have you always been like that? I mean, have you always been open and vulnerable, or, no. or is, has this come through your work and and through the, the the fact that you've that you've you know let it all out in a book? So you know, it's not like uh, have I? I mean, this right? You think I have? <laughs> the only uh, thing we don't know about you is how much credit card debt you have. And you said that in another article. You're like, the only true. secret I have is my debt. <laughs> I know. Everybody was like, you know, it's not a secret anymore. I was like, ha ha. Uh, yeah. <laughs> is it? We don't know. We don't know if we you're telling know. us the truth. <laughs> we know how much student debt she has, though. That's true. It's very, Do very we? Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things about coming back and sort of like rejoining New York City architecture is this is this sort of self-consciousness about what I was like in my early 20s, the first run, because mm-hmm, I was mm-hmm. like, I was so terrified and I covered that up by just being astonishingly egomaniacal. Mm-hmm. And I also was so self-conscious about having been such a bad architecture student that, I mean, this pains me to say, because I'm so I'm so ashamed, but like, I immediately was like, oh, I have power now. You know, like, oh, you had power like six months ago, but now I have power. Like, right, I'll do a studio right. visit with you, professor that I like, just gave me a grade, you know? And I really, like, I was so terrified of anybody seeing that. I was really young. I understand that my association with Philip, like, probably reflected, I don't think it reflected, like, poorly, but I think that there was a lot of skepticism around me and around my career because I was young and, you know, eventually involved with this person who had been my mentor. And, like, you know, it was just, there was a lot of kind of, like, public information kind of stacked, you know, against me if we're going to take the most cliche approach, which I think people tend to do. And so I felt a lot of pressure to just make myself bigger. You know, it was like seeing a mountain lion. Like I just tried to make myself like bigger and more powerful. And like the shit that I wrote was so mean. Like I was just so mean to architects and so critical. And people would be like, who do you like? And I was like, I don't even like any architects. Like I'm, you know, like I'm just, I'm just going to tear them down. Let me tell you, the process of making amends for that stuff was was very uncomfortable. I called Michael Arad and I was like, I am sorry that I was like personally just mean to you. And he was like, he was so gracious. He was just like, yeah, you were young and you were getting a byline. Um, I love it. I know it was it was an amazing, amazing act of generosity on his part to just be like, I will take this random phone call from this person who messaged me over LinkedIn to apologize for something that she did like 13 years ago. But I oh. felt bad about it. Well, it's it's amazing what what a sincere apology can do, because actually oh, yeah. there was something that came up recently on the discussion forum on Arconnect where a, a, a fairly nasty character in our forum attacked Donna and mm. and I confronted him about that and he he came back about like a few hours later with a with a very sincere apology to donna and to ev- and to everyone and to everybody had, yeah that he had that he had I, I guess unintentionally hurt in you know in in his uh in his kind of uh caustic manner and it was amazing how quickly like my perception of this person had changed like mm-hmm. dramatically mm-hmm. dramatically i mean when yeah. when somebody when somebody can can you know come from a place of of like you know honesty and and acknowledge their their uh regret and mm-hmm. sincere so it's it's powerful i th- i think that it you know michael arad may have really f- harbored some resentment towards you for all that time but i but i i 
I do believe that he, you know, probably as soon as he heard you uh, apologize to him, it, it probably did very quickly turn around. I think so. But no, I mean, I wasn't open until like, it, until it was a matter of life or death, right? I mean, so I was like egomaniacal slash terrified slash super mean slash really afraid slash, right? All those things. And then, and I was also doing a lot of cocaine, which does not make that behavior <laughs> any less. It in fact it certainly highlights. <laughs> um, and, you know, made me more aggressive. And then I realized like, you know, if I kept drinking and doing drugs the way that I was doing, like I was going to die, you know, I was like, I'm going to die. And so I was so desperate to live that I just basically like did what what people who had, you know, successfully not used drugs for a long time sort of suggested that I do. And a lot of that was just telling the truth, you know, but I remember like when I first started trying to stay sober, I was talking to somebody and she was like, yeah, why don't you just like write down like five times that you couldn't stop drinking? And I was like, well, I mean, I could have stopped if I wanted to, you know, which is <laughs> patently under. So it took me a couple of years to kind of get out of denial. And then I started to realize like, more of my sort of inherent personality was able to come in. And I think that I am like generally wired to tell the truth and generally wired for this sort of public intimacy and public vulnerability. And I do, I mean, I want you to know, like, I wish that I could be stoic and restrained and not share the, honestly and just be like, yeah, I'm just like facing some personal challenges. You know, I, I fantasize about being somebody who nobody knows anything about. But my friend Lynn, who's really, really wise, I, I I was like, why am I like this? Like, why do I raise my hand and why do I cry in public? And why do I write a memoir? Like, what's wrong with me? And she was like, Eva, this is just your job in this lifetime. Like, it's just your job to be out there. And people really, really need to hear the medicine that is in your doing this, you know? And I'm just like, fuck, I don't sound cool. I don't sound awesome. But I can't, I might as well just kind of be the best version of my, you know, way kind of overly emoting in public self. Um, so then how, how does that square though with your job as doing media strategy for architects? Because it seems like doing media strategy, you constantly have to, having to be telling people don't be who you are. Right. Or is that? Oh, yeah. well, that's not the advice that I give. I mean, I have one <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I always say, I'm like, whatever it is, you just got to make it work for you. Right. So I, yeah. so couple and this is hysterical. So the wife turns to me and she's like, do you think that my husband should lose, you know, X amount of weight for, you know, for PR purposes? And clearly you just wanted him to like, lose weight and dress differently. And I was like, listen, this is, you know, outside of my pay grade, but also I was like, no, I think that whatever it is that you have, you should really, really lean into. And then I have another client who I, I was pitching him for a TV project and he calls me and he's like, Eva, you know, I'm an introvert, right? Like, you know, you know that we've met before and I, I don't like this. And I was like, no, no, no. I thought about that, but you being actually really hesitant to be in front of the camera combined with the with the deep talent and love that you have for architecture if we can capture that that is so compelling so i was like i am not telling you to like power pose which we don't know if that works or not you know and get from the camera <laughs> be different i'm saying like you be as introverted as you want to be but just talk about architecture the way that you talk about it when we sometimes get on the phone we talk about one of your projects because when you do that i am enthralled and I, you know, I try to do like the Olivia Pope and scandal thing where it's like, you just tell the <laughs> truth, 
So no, my clients, I never say like, you know, I will say, you know, I would highlight this over that. I would focus more on this and on that, but I don't, I'm never like, okay, stop being shy or, you know, mm-hmm. be more shy or whatever. Yeah. I'm, I mean, mostly my job is just like figuring out what magazine might be a good. Well, I mean, that's like a gross generalization, but yeah. A lot of it is just sort of like intuiting what the culture is doing and intuiting how to talk about it. And then, you know, I'm also just have a really, I have a really good eye. So I'm just like, this is the picture that you should take. And then they, they're like, I don't believe you. And then they take it and they're like, this picture is great. So, you know, stuff like that. So what do you think about the, uh, the vessel or as I'm going to call it from here, here forward, the dingleberry? Yeah, it is. It is terrible. I, I like the shawarma. I like the shawarma reference. <laughs> the shawarma, yeah, it's shawarma. Yeah, that's I kept shawarma. thinking that it was just badly photographed. And I was like, wow, they're just really not catching this angle. And then I was like, nope, it is just, I mean, it's just bad. I, I don't know if you saw my, my hot take on Twitter. I was like, breaking news. The vessel is not good. I mean, it was no. a joke. 50 articles have come out that were like, the vessel is bad. So no, like, no, it is, though. It <laughs> is bad. Hot take. Oh, yeah, it's, it's terrible. It's not architecture. It's not sculpture. It's, I don't, I don't know. It's a, it's a big grift. I mean, I try to keep an eye out for like rifts in architecture. It is a grift. <laughs> in my opinion, has grifted, uh, the head of related. What's his name? Something. I don't, I don't know. And hopefully it doesn't matter that I don't know, but I'm afraid it does. I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so Eva, the, um, what I really, one of the things I appreciate about you is, uh, you could talk, it sounds like you could, you, you're just as, just as much comfortable, just as comfortable in front of like, um, a plumber as you would be in front of a professor, as you would be in front of an architect. I mean, you can, you seem to have this way of modifying or connecting with people at wherever they are in life that, that gives you some insight, I think, into, um, architecture and how to translate that for, you know, the general population. I mean, do you find that, do you find that this, that's the case? I mean, it's one thing to be honest. I mean, it's another thing to, I try to be as brutally honest as possible, but I, in, in brutal in capitals, all caps. I mean, I don't like, I, in fact, I got into my office today and one of the phone calls that I had a voice message uh, that was left for me. Um, and I'm like, oh, this is the one I get to fucking go off and and uh, take that energy that I just came back from New Jersey with and get to lay it down on a contractor. This is the call I get to do it on. And I was just, I was absolutely fucking, I had the whole office just stop again. I do this a lot. I have the whole office stop and interns stop what they're doing, peer around their computers and going, who is he fucking lighting up right now? <laughs> do you, I mean, do you find that that's important? I mean, it seems it. It just comes across in your writing. It comes across in your you talking to us. I mean, you know, you and 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 Kate Wagner seem to have this way of legitimately presenting good ideas in a way that kind of aligns with how people normal people talk. I mean, thank you so much because I, that that's that is really 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 nice to hear. And I was not always like that. I I think that teaching at UC Berkeley really helped me do that because I had like 18 year olds who were in my 8am architecture seminar and they were in that class because nobody wanted the 8am and they all hated architecture. And I was like, I got to get these kids to give me a good rating, you know, because like I want to teach in the future and I need to have good, good reviews. Right. So working backwards. And also, of course, I deeply love architecture. I care so much about architecture. I really want other people to care about it. 
And so I had to learn how to really communicate with them. And I would do the weirdest shit. I mean, I remember I had a class and I was like, what is architecture? And they were like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And I put like a coffee cup in the middle of the table. And I was like, does this change the architecture? And then one of my students got on the table, put his chair on the table, sat on the table. We're like, is this architecture? I start like crawling around on the floor. Then I start hiding. Then they all start talking to each other. And I'm like, right now we're talking about power dynamics. Like I just have the kind of brain that's just able to be like, I need another way in. And I think a lot of that is, is from talking to like people who are trying to stay sober. Right. Because Mm -hmm. like the people that help me not drink are so different from me. And the people that I try to help not drink are so different from me. And I need to find that immediate moment of like deep human connection. Right. I need to be able to be like, okay, like you just got out of detox. You've been in jail. You're a man. Your wife has left you. You have children. And you think that like you need to go have a beer. Is there any moment at which I can say like, you know what, man? Like I know how that, I know, I don't know how that feels, but I think I know how you feel. And so doing that for now, like over a decade, I think has really trained me out of having preconceptions, which of course I have, right? I am a deeply flawed person with preconceptions and judgments, but I have like the ability to have a second thought and be like, maybe this person is scared or maybe this person is doing what I used to do and like needs to sound super smart. But I also think that like, I just love architecture so much. And I think that that enthusiasm hopefully comes through and, and, and I don't have a fear of like, I don't anymore have a fear of competition. And so I don't need to like hold everything kind of close to the chest. Like I'm I'm like, yeah, there's enough room for like me, Andrew Blum, Ian Volner and Carrie Jacobs and Alexandra Lang. Like there's room for all of us and Justin Davidson, you know? Um, (laughs) So I don't have to like, I don't don't know. I, I can just talk to them and be like, oh yeah, like deadlines. But I wasn't always like that. I mean, I think part of that is almost dying. Part of that is being sober. Part of that is just like my extremely mature age of 36, you know, but it is really nice to hear that that's your perception because I think one of the things that's been a challenge for me is like promoting this book, which has almost nothing about architecture in it and also still trying to be taken seriously as an architecture critic who can come in and just go straight architecture at you for an hour and a half. And you would never even know that I have this other career as somebody who writes about my feelings and how much money I lie about. You know, like I, and, and, and I think I'm trying to figure out now if those things can coexist. And like this podcast has been the first opportunity for me to actually bring these worlds together. And in our conversation, see that they are not disconnected. You know, they're all part of the same project, which is like, I just want people to open their eyes and see that the world is fucking dope. And there is so much bullshit and some of it is buildings and some of it is feelings and some of it is crying and some of it is like laughing, but it's really, really awesome. And we're just going to look at it together. And I happen to have this like, you know, training and how to look at buildings. So I can probably help you understand what's so dope about this building, you know, in the same way I can help you understand what's so dope about crying in public. Do you think your perception of, of the world is what is, is, is a big part of what makes you such a good writer? Because I, I guess, I guess the bigger question is what, how do you define a good writer and, and what, what do you think has contributed to your success as a writer? Mm. I think looking is, is huge. And that's something that Philip really taught me. Um, cause when I started working with him, you know, he would, he would take me to all these lower Manhattan development corporation meetings and I would sit in on interviews and I would transcribe a lot of interviews and I would just sort of see what it's like to be a person who's curious about the world. Right. And, uh, and who's sort of open-minded and is like, what can I learn here? So I think learning how to see was really, really important. 
And I think also like we make fun of my father. We call him like a robot optimist. Cause he's just always like, Oh boy, it's going to be great. Oh boy. That's just going to be great. <laughs> and I'm kind of the same. Like, I'm like, Oh yeah. I'm sure this like mediation that I'm going to on Friday, I think it's going to be great. You know? And then I'm like an idiot. And I'm, you know, confused when things aren't great, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I think it's like just a general enthusiasm. Um, and also, um, but to more directly answer your question, I mean, I think good writers are people who can, what I strive to do, my highest goal is to give verbal shape to something that people sort of feel on the edges of their consciousness, but they're not exactly sure how to articulate it or where it resides. And that's, that works for architecture and for feelings, right? Where it's like somebody sees a building and they're like, Ooh, I, don't like that building. What I try to be like, oh, here's why you don't like that building. Here's what that building makes you feel. You know, here's why this building makes you feel amazing. And so the good writers that I know are able to be really, really precise and specific in a way that somehow invites me to then have my own experience and, and bring, you know, myself into the text and think about not how I might behave in that situation, but just like, do I think like that? Is that a way that I think? Is that a way that I want to think? Is that a way that I don't want to think? But, you know, I also, I mean, I became a better writer by, this is important. I took a lot of classes. When I was at UC Berkeley, I took five full-length, really intensive writing workshops. And I was workshop to shit, you know? And the fact that I'd been a professional writer didn't matter when I was doing my first short story that like, didn't have a plot and didn't make any sense, you know, and Vikram Chandra, Tom Farber, Bharati Mukherjee, like they worked with me and taught me how to make a scene and how to have things happen. And I think that it's, you know, I did that. And then I wrote, I wrote for magazines for 15 years. And so I think a lot of writers might see, we're sort of positioning this as my like breakout debut success, you know, like, who am I? I'm totally unheard of, but like, I've been here practicing every day for 15 years And I worked really, really, really hard on that book. And I wrote 47 drafts and I read it to myself every night. And I, you know, I, it was not like I got to the page and I was like, oh, I finally, you know, I'm going to, it's, it's like all this sort of training and education really contributed. And I know now that I want to be a better writer than I am today. And I know that I just have to practice and keep, you know, asking for more help. So but thank you for saying I'm a good writer. That's always really, really nice to hear. What do you think is, uh, what do you think of the current state of journalism and writing relative to where it has been since you started writing for money? Mm-hmm. And where do you think, where do you think it's going? I mean, it's always been in crisis, right? Like always, <laughs> always, always, always. Because when I moved to New York in 2003, they were like, I mean, the Architects newspaper was just starting, but it was still like, well, there's no money. You know, there's no money and nobody wants anything. And yet somehow, I think people still want to know what's going on. Um, I'm really, really glad that so many newsrooms are unionizing. I would recommend if you're a media worker or an architectural worker, find out about how to start a union. I think that labor coming back is, is, I'm very optimistic about the effects of that because there is enough money. I mean, one of the great lies is that nobody pays for journalism. And we're starting to see with sort of, you know, crowdsource things like the correspondent or which I have no opinion about, but you know, they exist. Um, Popula, you know, there's all these publications that are testing out subscriber models. I'm not a business person. I don't know if they'll work, but I think that there is actually a hunger and a desire. But the reason that, you know, BuzzFeed laid off so many people was like BuzzFeed shareholders wanted more money. You know, I think it's like greed and capitalism, not a lack of interest. I think people are very, very deeply interested in media. So I think like I'm optimistic because we're unionizing, you know, 
I talk to other PR people and they're like, our jobs aren't going to exist in three years. And I'm like, but our jobs aren't to place print stories in feature magazines. Our jobs are to talk to architects and figure out what they're saying and look at their buildings and figure out what sort of image might help to articulate that building to somebody who really wants to learn about it. And like, yeah, the media might change, but, but I think fundamentally this role that I have, which is, you know, translating and articulating is going to stick around and your jobs are going to stick around in some way. Um, and architecture is going to stick around and like, we're going to have magazines like beamed to our neurons, you know, in 20 years, (laughs) I think we're still going to something that is connected theoretically to what we think of a magazine now. So I'm optimistic, but again, I'm always optimistic. I'm like, I think it's going to be great. It's going to be great. Yeah. It's gonna be I think so, that's going to be, that's going to be the title of this episode. Yeah. I think it's gonna that's be a great. good idea. Yeah. That's a good idea. So we, we only have a few more minutes according to your time. Can you want to do your questions unless we have anything else that we need to touch base or talk about? I, I kind of want to hear even talk a little bit more about architecture. <laughs> I, can, I can stay a little longer too. So we can. Uh, okay. We can, All right. Yeah. A couple more minutes. Just a little, I guess I, I would, I would definitely, I mean, you, you've already talked, you already, you know, given your comment about the vessel, but I want to hear more about, you know, when we, when we're considering Hudson Yards in a way of like presenting architecture to, to, you know, the general population and given how much money is spent on this project and how much money wasn't spent ultimately on Amazon, um, headquarters. And, you know, the, uh, Donna posted something or, uh, uh, retweeted something today about architects like Tom Main and Moshe Safdi going around saying, Oh, you know, it's bad architecture in America. There's nothing going on important. It's, but you know, they're building over in China and they're saying, you know, all this great stuff that they can do in China. And I'm going, geez, I, I wonder why that might be. Aren't these opportunities? It would seem that these, especially when you look at the list of shit you can't do on Hudson Yards that your photos that you take there are not owned by you, that you can't access that stupid fucking thing if you are have a disability of any mo- a disability related to mo- mobility. I mean, the fact that you pretty much are not, not a person inside that space, aren't these the opportunities that are ripe for really kind of a representation of why it's important as a citizen to be engaged in the processes around us that allow these things to happen? I mean, I think citizens should always be engaged. I think it's, I think this sort of goes back to my original point, which is that people just think that they don't have agency or they don't have understanding or that architecture is somehow specialized and they're not qualified to comment on it. And I sort of wonder if we had basic architectural education in schools, if people would feel differently about being like, oh, there's a new development going into my building or going into my neighborhood, like I'm going to go to the community board meeting, you know, because we all know the sort of cliche of the community board meeting, which is just a bunch of like old people who are retired and have, you know, are very attached to a planner or something. Right. I mean, we all sort of dismiss them, but I think that's because of a fundamental lack of like public literacy. And I don't know. I just, that's why I try and get them young. You know, that's why I'm like (laughs) teaching the freshmen at UC Berkeley. I want to teach the high school students. Like, Hey, architecture matters. It matters to you. You don't have to actually have this like incredibly specialized knowledge to understand it. And like, here are the ways in which you can actually as a citizen affect change. And I think that we are in this political climate starting to realize more and more how much we matter and how important it is that we participate. My friend Adam Nemet wrote a great novel called We Can Save Us All, which is about a dystopian near future. And it's set at Princeton and like time is doing something weird. 
But his main point is like, we always wait for the superheroes to come and save us, but we can save us all. Like, it's just going to be us kind of like bumbling around. So I feel like that was stuff like Hudson Yards, which is, yeah, I mean, it's just capitalism. Like just capitalism yeah. is, is not, is not great. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm not into it, but it's, you know, it is like a lot of different forces. And yeah, it's appalling that if you have, you know, a, a different type of mobility that you can't, I mean, going to the vessel is terrible because it's a terrible building, terrible. It's not even a building, whatever it is, object. Folly. Yeah. <laughs> Does that answer your question? Yeah. Hey, have before I get to my, I don't know if anybody else has any questions before I get to my two favorite questions, <laughs> but I, have you, have you seen anything on the internet about the, the Nazi architect? No, there's a new Nazi architect. Uh, what do you mean yeah. by new? Like instead of Philip Johnson? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or like Albert no, Spare. No, a, a actual literal white nationalist inside the AIA profession. I haven't. <laughs> Who is it? What, Paul? Have you seen this? No, no. I'm okay. I'm uh, anxiously awaiting Ken's description of this guy. I'm not sure we should talk about it yet, Ken. No, well, maybe not. It's public. I mean, there's a there's you know there are um um some activists over in Germany and they are hacking, not, I don't know if I, I want to use hacking in quotes, but it's, it's not, it's their, their docs. I mean, they're figuring out who these people are by how, you know, they're, what they're doing is they're going, if they see people at I, identity Europa events or unite the right rallies, they're figuring out who these people are. And it turns out that one of the people that they found at this event, the person in Germany who's not a German citizen, that, that's just where she lives right now, was able to track her down and find out that she is um, an associate AIA member and future architect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah. So that, she's an eco-nationalist. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay, I did actually see a very small amount of this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well... They're everywhere. I mean, why why would we think that architects would not be, you know, white nationalists yeah. also? Ugh. Yeah, it's a nasty conversation that I hate that we're going to have to have, but we are going to have to have it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pushing. I'm pushing. Yeah, it's coming. It's coming. That day of reckoning <laughs> is coming. It is. Good. good. Yeah, good. Exactly. <laughs> so, Eva, Eva, what are you reading and what are you listening to these days? Uh, I'm reading, I'm finishing a novel by Elliot Pepper called Breach, which is part of this three-part series that takes place in, a, in an almost present future. It's awesome. I did an event with him in Oakland, and he's just a fabulous writer. So that's what I'm reading. Um, and I'm also reading Winners Take All, which I actually thought would be really different than it, than it was. So I can't 100% recommend it. What am I listening to? I'm listening to a lot of Lana Del Rey recently. I pick like one album per year and then I just listen to that album. I'm listening to Born to Die, the album by Lana Del Rey came out in 2012. I just put it on as loud as possible and I listen to it on repeat um, like for a year. And then I just do a different album. So I've been also listening to the Drive soundtrack, the movie Drive starring... Ryan Gosling. Yeah. Oh my, that's the, one of the best soundtracks. Oh, it is uh, Cliff, Cliff Martinez, the uh, yeah. the composer that did that. He's like my favorite film composer. It's, yeah, it's so good. Yeah, he's done some really great work in in other films and actually uh, on on TV as well. Amazing. I'm gonna get everything. Oh, and the Leftovers soundtrack. I also love the Leftovers soundtrack. 
by Max Richter. Oh, Max. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Well, it was really great having you on, Eva. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor. <laughs> oh, thank you. I would have been too afraid to ask you like 10 years ago to come on the podcast if we had a podcast back then, because you're much you're much uh, nicer than I, I thought you were going to be. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I think 10 years ago, I was still not nice yet. I was not Eva 3.0 of nice Eva. I, w- I would have been like, Bleh. So, yeah, I'm I'm delighted that uh, the world brought us together now as opposed to then. It's just because I would have been scared, you know, but I wouldn't have ever told you that. I would have just been me. Exactly. That's, yeah, that's a lot of what, to me, the book is so much about those fears and the things that we do because we're scared and because we're um, we're not feeling confident. And yet then exactly. you realize later, yeah, I should have just, as you said, I should have just been been who I was, yeah. <laughs> not, not been so scared. Yeah. But it's hard. It is hard in the moment. Of course it is. That's that's growing up. So, okay. Okay. Well, we'll let you thank go. You. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. So it's so much. good to talk with you. Oh, my God. You. Thank you. Yeah, you too. Yeah. You're all awesome. Yeah. All right. Bye. You are too. Take care. Bye. Bye. Well, that's our conversation with Eva Hackberg. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag ArcConnectSessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thanks so much, and we will talk to you next time.